the Sala Puja. And as you've been informed and probably already aware, this is the commemoration of the um, Buddha's first um, coherent teaching and more than that of a transmission of teaching. In other words, he didn't just expound something, but somebody actually got it and it, it uh, changed them radically. Mm. So that's the fullness of this particular um, sutta that we chanted, and you can see it in the Book of the Connected Discourses, the Satcha Sanyutta. You can look at it, you can review it, because there's a whole collection of them there, a whole gathering of suttas around this particular theme, which is essentially Four Noble Truths, 130 suttas there, all, all proclaiming this core teaching. Only one of them actually talks about the middle way. So, so it, it's an interesting presentation. And this one commemorates the first occasion this uh, was expressed and the reason why it became so crucial was because it had a transformative effect. So as you might have noticed in this, the Buddha gives this uh, teaching, of which we might say the core that we recollect and remember is these called the Four Noble Truths. There's dukkha, trouble, stress, something's wrong, something's not fitting, stress is getting generated, it is generated, something that is generated, not innate, through some kind of pressure or something's pushing or something's twisting or imbalanced, kind of key. That's the second noble truth. Third noble truth, this situation can be resolved through letting go of the, of the pressure, the torsion, the force that's generating this uh, distortion, which the Buddha calls dunha, or thirst, craving. Uh, not desire as such, it's a form of desire, but it's a, it's a kind of ignorant form of desire because it's trying to arrive somewhere that it can't get to. And what's this? There's three forms, this particular desire that's unfitting. There is a desire that's fitting, it's called chanda, the motivation, sense of purpose uh, that we have for practice, for realization, to help each other, so on. But where it goes wrong is this tanha becomes craving, which is associated with wanting to hold on to something. An agreeable, pleasant experience to hold on to, to have, to store up, to be guaranteed one will get repeatedly. And it projects itself onto sense data, sights, sounds, touches, perhaps even thoughts. People get high on intellectual pursuits and brilliant mathematical theories and mm, craving for the final solution to the universe. Everything's known and so forth. I'm trying to hold on to some state of being that will be lasting and permanent. Some identity that gets formed out of that desire, that craving to be something stable and steady 
formed with a history and a future definite, certain, reliable, going the right way got it all cleared and sorted out holding on to that impression that very powerful impression that very powerful instinct so powerful that we don't really get it that we hold on to a ghost who is this person? where do they live? who is this ghost I call myself always moving fluttering around crashing into things worrying about things quarrelling with things what is this? (laughs) owning things saying it owns things claiming it has rights demanding the world be this way claiming as ownership of the earth, claiming as the right to destroy any living creature that stands in its way. What is this thing? Trying to build that up into something permanent and lasting uh, that's unquestioned and um, has rights and and the other form of craving craving to just not have to be here at all don't have to see anything hear anything, touch anything, taste anything don't have anything happen I want to be like a invisible ghost somehow in some dissociated, abstract, non-entity which we may think, what's that? well, um, talk to a heroin addict about that talk to people who wish to obliterate themselves to not have to feel anything they'll tell you what it's like Talk to people who are depressed and suicidal. Just not to have to bear the pressures of existence. And we all get perhaps days like that, or moments like that, or scenarios like that, when just life seems too much for me I can't go on with this let me just and times when it goes the other way I really want to have more have things controlled really colonise and own things it's kind of switching around Uh, this is the the pressure that gets created within existence Mm. is causing friction unhappy unresolved friction with others frictions with one's body frictions with one's feeling frictions with one's history frictions with the past frictions with what other people have done fear about what they might do and the kind of formations that arise through that the defence policies and the ownerships and the claiming security and the defending oneself and egotism that, that takes over in order to bolster this whole thing up that can't ever succeed you know Who feels more insecure? Someone living in a monastery that, where the doors aren't locked, where the gate is open, where the dumb horse is freely available, 
anybody can come in and sit here. Who feels more secure, a person like that, or a person who's got a gated dwelling, fences around it, security guards, sirens, alarms? Who feels more secure, worrying about their bank account? And who feels more secure? People who own things, or people who don't own things? <laughs> And have shifted that ownership, that search, that hunger for something stable and comforting to something much more innate. They dwell endowed with virtue. They dwell uplifted by harmlessness. They dwell with the four treasures. They're rich with the four treasures. What are these four treasures? Metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, udita, appreciation of the good, upeka, trusting, serenity, things will pass, will, things will pass, this is for sure. Therefore, stay with it, Don't get flustered, keep your heart steady, things will pass. Endowed with these four treasures, enriched with these four treasures, a person walks freely in the world of conflict, pain, stress, competition, blame, and so on. This is the transformation In a way, I've kind of (laughs) moved on outside the range of the sutta. But of course, this is a this is a could see a seed discourse. From this one seed, a whole forest of teachings arises, different, all contained with this. Because out of this seed, the eightfold path, all the Buddhist teachings arise from this one point. The transformation from craving and clinging, fixation, and bolstering up and holding on into something that's luminous, blessing, unrestricted. Through this one key point, this is with the uh, complete. No holds barred, dispassionate release from every kind of craving. The Tathagata is liberated. And it says, unshakable is my deliverance. There's nothing to be shaken because there's nothing nothing being held on to. How can you shake space? How can you destroy space? How can you lose space? When the Buddha presented this, as I said, there was a transmission. The transmission is kind of presented very sort of, um, in a very kind of uncommentable way, but the first uh, response to this is there's a lot of energy starts getting released you know? and these devas, these energy beings these beings who are composed of different forms of subtle energy start getting extremely frisky <laughs> and there are levels of them those that kind of dwell around the earth the earth spirits they get pretty lively and then the beings who oversee them get lively and the beings who oversee them get even more lively. Eventually all the spirit world is just rocking (laughs) and shimmering and trembling and glorifying and celebrating everything you know. That's one response the Buddha doesn't comment on that then one of the the monks who's sitting there, this summoner, this kind of gone forth person called Kondanyo 
Everything that arises is of the nature to cease. And the Buddha says, Kandanya has realized. He has had the realization. The others did the celebrating, but he got the, he got the transmission. And he was very pleased. Actually, this t- teaching had worked. Yeah. It's actually, although it's the Pali doesn't easily translate into English because it doesn't quite say that. I've said that, but really because the English, trying to say it literally in English, you come up with something like, um, all arising quality is ceasing quality. And that, that doesn't make sense. But in other words, it's not that there are things that change, but there's nothing but change. There's no thing there. <laughs> what is being experienced is a continual flux. Like mist, you could say. Because uh, and that's is clearly what Kandanyu had experienced having listened to this presentation of the tracking in. And again, it's very interesting because it said, in the midst of this discourse, while these words were being said, he had this realization. He didn't go away, develop the jhanas and think about it, get there. No. While this was being said, he was overly clearly using his faculties, you know, listening to words, and those words touching, going so penetrating into the structures of experience, saying right in there, if there can be a release of that pressure, that hinge point of craving, and clearly he must have done that while it was being heard. This is a powerful realization experience. The arising quality is the ceasing quality. The feature of arising is the feature of ceasing. The two are sort of synonymous. You see a wave and it's really that which is moving from one position to another position. It's not a separate entity. You see a wave is a trough coming in the opposite direction. Every wave is the beginning of the next trough. Every trough is the beginning of the next wave. There's no separation. You step back from that, you just see waving. (laughs) Waves aren't separate entities, it's just waving. Uh, Now we may all have kind of considered um, the impermanence of things, impermanence of life, mortality. You know, a good number of poets have written about the impermanence of the flower or the transience of youth or the fleeting passions of love or, you know, these kinds of wistful, melancholic stuff that they hadn't realised <laughs> awakening with that. They just wrote some very touching verse and poignant. Uh, but So it's not just that there are things that change, but there's nothing that we experience except shifting waves, shifting waves. Mm. So much so that uh, to say anything definitely is something is already a really rather a mistake. So what is manifesting is a process that was also described in a particular way by the Buddha, in a way that only the Buddha described reality, experience as. No other teacher ever taught this. And so it's straight, clearly, it wasn't something inherited from the tradition. There's no record of it anywhere else in Indian thought prior to the Buddha. So it clearly arose at that time 
It's called the five aggregates. So what we experience really is a process whereby there's some kind of an object of some kind. If we're awake, if we're in this process of consciousness, there's something we're conscious of. There's some object. It's sight, predominantly. An object has a certain shape to it. Shape's called rupa. So shapes, things have shapes, things have forms. What a thing is, is really a form. How we experience thinginess is through the experience of shape or form. So definitely there's a thing because there's a shape there. Okay, well, let's have a look at that shape. How long does that shape stay regular without any flux? movement. Maybe um, human bodies move around, uh, trees move around. No, a mountain. Well, look at a mountain. What's a mountain look like at midnight? What does it look like when it's mist on it? What does it look like when it's covered with snow? What does it look like, uh, you know, at dawn? See, I mean, recently, I was, last year I was in Switzerland and I would sit there in this particular room in the morning, and just as the sun was coming up, and suddenly the darkness shifted and changed, and then these mountains popped up. As far as we knew, they didn't exist until that light came. And the light came, and they gradually changed and shape as the light hit them. And that those mountains kept changing all day long. <laughs> until the evening they disappeared. <laughs> What mountains? <laughs> now you can say, well, you know, that's just, uh, but they're really there. Oh, yeah? They're really, yeah, of course they're there. So you go out and drive your car, and you can't see them anymore because you're in them. <laughs> As you get closer, they change shape. What shape is a mountain? depends on where you're seeing it from and what time of day. It's dependent upon consciousness, isn't it? So there's no existence apart from consciousness. And if you're conscious of something, that depends on whether you've got eyes, how good they are, whether a human being or a rat, um, you know, whether it's dark or light. No matter how good your eyes are, you can't see in the pitch dark. So consciousness itself depends upon other factors to occur in order for these forms to materialize. Yeah. And how does consciousness work? Well, we get some kind of felt impression, there's a perception, we recognize something is this, yeah, that occurs, and we generally get start getting reacting to it. That's a great mountain, what a wonderful one of those. Get that thing out of here, it's untidy. Oh, there's a bee. Horn it, kill it, before it attacks me. <laughs> right? Little creature, <laughs> kill it. <laughs> Your reaction. Because you see something like a, a wasp, and you see this kind of creature that's going to kill you or hurt you. Is it? If you mess with it, it probably would. But would it be out of vicious violence or just because it was frightened? Or just because you grabbed hold of it? Do you see what I mean? How we, we create plausible realities out of really what are a wedge, a conglomeration of conscious impressions of forms that trigger certain responses and reactions. And so that we all believe Wasps are creatures that must be killed, or that's putting it crudely. But if you you take that analysis across the human experience, we certainly carry those signals. Rats, kill it. And then, unfortunately, human beings, kill them. Bad, evil. Wrong, wrong side of the fence, the other side of the border, wrong denomination, wrong religion, wrong colour, you know, wrong nation, kill it. 
you defend yourself against it, threatening, hostile, nasty, kill it. You know? Fear, aggression, so that we will be, I will be more comfortable in my reality. Mm. And what does that do? Lives in a world of fear and aggression and inequality. Yeah. We create we create that through grasping, right? Yeah. Where does poverty come from? We look at dogs or bears, are there rich bears and poor bears? Nope. Do they have to get together and make sure they've got their bank account straight and equal? No. There are no such things as rich bears and poor bears. How comes rich people and poor people? Are there rich gorillas and poor gorillas? No. Where does this rich poor thing come from? Grasping, 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 greed, grasping, non-sharing. And then, oh, poor people, they're ignorant, they're lazy, they're stupid, they're... Well, if you don't educate them, if you... Also, they get criminal. Well, of course, if you keep treating them like scum, they'll get... No, they'll probably will get a bit violent. <laughs> if you keep depriving them of, of what you're... you're Getting all the all the resources, they might get a bit jealous and feisty. I imagine. Why do we? Have, what created that? Did poor people create it, or did rich people create it? I think rich people created it because nobody says, "Oh, I'd like to be poor, please." They say, oh, "I want to be rich." <laughs> That's what created poor people. Right? And that becomes so normal, so so understood, so innately patterned into our social structure. Craving, grasping, mine. I don't care about you. It's your because you're separate. You're that form over there. Very interesting because do we assume this is kind of fundamental to humans, but it, it's, it isn't, actually. Mm. I remember reading some accounts of anthropologists visiting tribal peoples. And one of their sayings was, oh, if somebody comes to our village who's impoverished, it's a disgrace because we're not looking after him. Not, oh, he's useless or lazy. We have to give things. We have to. Otherwise it's just it's unspeakable that we should not give. If somebody's in need, we've got to give them something. And this anthropologist says, well, so what would happen if you didn't give them anything? Oh no, this guy says, I can't believe it, how you could not give. He tries to think what would happen if you could not if you didn't give because it was so, so inconceivable. He goes, "Well, you know, you die alone under a tree, isolated. Your spirit would not be welcomed into the cosmos. You know, it's that bad. <laughs> you know, there's such a sense of." You know, shared belonging, shared quality. You recognize, you know, somebody's had an accident, they're not so well, we've got to look after them. Somebody's missed something or lost something, better give them something. You know, the grasping is something we've kind of learned, (laughs) picked up because of the this kind of society and has touched something that's certainly potentially in all of us, you know, and structure something whereby it's constantly, you can have one of these, if you get one of these, you'll be all right, if you get one of these, you'll be 
good person, you buy one of these, you'll get this, one of those, you'll be all right in the future, buy an insurance policy, in the future, make sure you've got your bank account, so in the future you'll be permanent happiness, guaranteed, this way, just around the corner. Permanent happiness, just around the corner, run faster, so you run faster. Her permanent happiness, just around the corner, work harder, you work harder. Just around the corner, permanent happiness. <laughs> Keep running. <laughs> so that permanent happiness stuff. <laughs> yeah. Grasping at these constructions, you see. I mean, you know, so this kind of these rather abstract notions like perception, consciousness, form, reactions, responses, it's all this. That's what it. Well, that's the underpinning of this whole, you know, creation, a structured reality in which I am separate from everything else. Therefore, I live in a state of anxiety and need. And, you know, and that's called grasping. Dukkha, in a nutshell, <laughs> trouble. I am trouble, I'm in trouble, and I create trouble. Yeah. I create trouble, My this thing creates trouble for me, it creates trouble for you, it creates trouble for other creatures. And it's all... So breaking that, releasing that, just recognizing how, what a pitfall it is, how we sleepwalk into it instinctively because of these presentations of these form, consciousness, perceptions, feelings and responses that we don't really examine. They close into a fixed grip. Now, it's not saying there shouldn't be any, any, you know, it's not the problem with form. You know, it's just the way that the consciousness works, you know. You can't stop that. But you can know this is just the form. We imagine that something form has a three-dimensional solid reality, but you sure? What's what's that? If you look very straight with no assumptions, no expectations, what you see is shapes changing. And the rest of it, we fill in details. And by and large, it sort of works, sort of. But it's amazing how many times you really get it wrong when you see another human. And you think you've got them. You know what she's at. You know he's one of those. And you can't stand the way he is because he's like that. And how solid these things get. And you carry them around. And and even you sit around and you still try to undo it. And five years later it's still sitting in you. And you're still wrangling over it. And 15 years later it's still sitting in there. And you're still chewing over it. That person, what they did and shouldn't have done. They're going to got stuck in your heart <laughs> and you're still hanging on and fighting with them. There's nobody there at all. <laughs> they, and you're still fighting with them. You know? And you think that that, you're, that is like on the verge of insanity if you ask me. And yet how normal is that? Because we so take these perceptions and impressions to be solid realities. And you won't find one. You won't find one. And, you know, says to me we're just in some state of, I don't know anything. Ah, what do I do? No, not really. That realization that everything is just virtual wavering, shifting, changing means certainties. You can't hold on to all that 
and trying to squeeze it into something solid. It doesn't mean you have to live in a state of continual confusion. No. Develop morality. Whoever it is, whatever it is, big or small, fair or foul, weird or wonderful, let me not harm it. Let me quell that reaction of abusiveness. Not just not killing it, but not despising it. Not claiming having rights over it, not dominating it. You take that ethical sense and develop it and it transforms. And because it's something, especially the only thing you can really feel you've got some say over. The rest of the world is constantly shimmering and shaking and quavering and not secure. But make this, because this is something you could live by. That's just one precept. And here we're kind of recommending a whole in-depth, you know, in-depth behavioral transformation that's not esoteric, not technically complex, but transformative. And more than that, perhaps as a development from that, cultivate qualities of goodwill. Not letting aversion, jealousy, take over your heart. Not letting fear and irritation take over your heart. Not getting giddy when success comes in or thrown down when there's disappointment. Not letting these forces take over your heart. Your heart, look after your heart. It will strengthen and it will be a blessing for you. To something you can take refuge in and rely upon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cultivating like this and developing like this. The Tathagata dwells with unrestricted citta, unrestricted by form, feeling, perception, reactions and responses and consciousness, unrestricted by birth, aging, death, unrestricted by defilement, unrestricted by dukkha, trouble, pain, suffering. These may arise, the heart is not restricted, shoved down, oppressed, reacted to it. There's a freedom in this very situation through non-grasping. Now, of course, it's all very, I think we get the general picture, but how does it, this grasping simply such an innate kind of mechanism that just clamps like a fear mechanism or a temptation. I want to have one of those. It's really nice. I really love that. I deserve one of those. (laughs) You know, or that thing is really getting in the way. Get push it away. That person, that kind of quality. It definitely takes some work. But based upon that, that, that realization, how how solid is anything? Isn't it all just stuff changing and being firmed up by one's passion, being firmed up by one's fear, being firmed up by one's anxiety, being firmed up by one's craving? That's what makes it so solid. And maybe I could take responsibility for that rather than I'm in some situation that traps me. I'm stuck with people I can't stand. Or maybe I've got to do the shifting. <laughs> Rather than shift the world, I'm going to shift this. Okay? So, through what? 
recognizing what's those energies that I that get generated that firm up a sense of trap and dukkha are to be contemplated also as these are just waves these are just movements of emotion these are just rushes of feeling that's what they are not denying they exist they're that and they don't they don't belong to anybody else they're not really generated by external forces they're generated through what? we might say well I'm just a messed up person I'm just a kind of aggressive person I've got a lot of aggression because when I was this and that and then I okay uh, well let's, let's go back to that here and now experience when we, when we feel fear or being left out or I'm not getting enough who, who, who is that? Do you ever see that? Do you ever turn your attention back to that? Who that is? You probably just find a kind of a, a reflex twitch. Not a person at all, but a kind of vacillating movement. And through of suffering something stressing and hidden and called myself this is to be penetrated so we acknowledge our fears, anxieties our ways we blame people or blame ourselves or grasp at things okay okay well not okay but Let's put some restraint on acting on it. Really, what goes on in here? You know, what is that search for security, search for comfort, search for things to be okay? Where's it going to? It's going out into a, a world of ghosts, of virtual realities, of imagined possibilities, of idealistic judgments, the world should be this way, people should be this way, she should like this, she should be like that, going out to a shoulds. Well, you know, create a whole list of shoulds if you like, the, the, you know, if you've got the time to do it. We all should. Yeah, but what is? This. And now... What is forming that experience, resisting it, feeling oppressed by it? Just contemplate those energies. Where are they coming from? Something shaky, something agitated. This is where we bring our awareness kindly, spaciously, dispassionate. It's with the dispassionate relinquishment of every form of craving. It's not snap out of it, pull yourself together, you idiot. It's not, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't be this way, you should be nicer and sweeter and kinder and more peaceful than you actually are. That's more of the same stuff. It's not creating another should-be ghost. There comes a tyrant living in our heads. Useless. Can only complain. Let's get down to that source of where does this energy all start running out into these aggregates, into these candas, these five forms. Mm. Dispassionate. Let's get curious about it. Mm. and it's this point at which there's a response from dispassion is cooling easeful non-violent harmonizing you're touching the sense when the passion ceases harmony starts to arise just as when the night fades the light comes up 
everything arises. This is ceasing. It's just a wave. Those strong habits, passions, fears, those fixed positions which seem so locked, those enemies are stuck in our heads, are only held that way through tension and a pressure of craving that needs to be understood and dispassionately made aware of. It's this now. The rising of dispassion is the quelling of passion. It's not get rid of passion then you'll have dispassion. No, you have to be dispassionate around passion and that's what drains that energy and then get spacious. You find the space opens up and suddenly things are not so bad anymore. It's just that. Mm. What was all the fuss about? Mm. It's powerful transformative teaching because it it takes the pressure off internally. You don't feel so tight and jittery and contracted and nervy and worried. It takes the pressure off externally. You become more gentle and spacious and easygoing and relaxed and other people start to shift around you. It's a powerful transformative teaching to let go, to realize where that begins in acknowledging one's fear and one's ideals and one's craving for certainty and one's sense I should make things work. What are you talking about? I just really examine some of these assumptions that stick there without you really knowing them. You know? Mm. You know? And the sense of just curious. It's like these are just these dream figures, shadow dream figures. And we don't born out of ignorance. Sometimes being here and and feeling one was sort of supervising community. (laughs) It's just nice, nice idea. (laughs) I don't think, God, it's always suffering. So much people always getting it wrong and suffering and complaining and this, that and fretting and this and getting you know, I was feeling a bit fed up with it all and I remember kind of saying why is there always so much dukkha here and this uh, I think this nun said Monty, that's what we're here for we're here to understand dukkha <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> Right. Uh, we're not here to kind of have a happy, you know, we're here to actually get our hands into this, and certainly there's going to be some struggling, and then it's going to be spacious. Okay, people struggle. People say things they shouldn't have said. Okay, you know, you know, struggling, conflict, the unrealized being thrashes around. They kind of just got to really, really, really be very loving, very patient, and very equanimous. And you know, just trust the power of that dispassion and willingness to be with the conflicted experience. You know, we're Buddhists, we believe in suffering. (laughs) It's our orientation. We're not kind of trying to shove it under some idealistic pink cushion and God will get rid of it. (laughs) <laughs> and now we're about to of course monasteries we'd like we really want them to be peaceful and comfortable and everything okay you know but it's quite unusual <laughs> it's, 
And uh, it's, it's as okay as our capacity to be spacious and open and clear and honest. That's how that's when it gets good. The rest of it, it just comes and goes. It's the nature of situations. I remember a few years back, I was um, I was visiting Amrawadi and this guy who I knew this fellow, and he obviously got psychological imbalance. He'd go a bit manic and he started to get really agitated and start clamoring for this, that, and the other, and he'd get angry, and people would get upset with him, and he'd get even more angry, and he was going kind to of build, build up a head of steam. And he was in the Amrawadi Sala, he'd obviously gone off, lost it, he was kind of railing about, this shouldn't be that way, and, and, and people were freaking out, and somebody said, look, this is totally inappropriate behavior, you shouldn't be doing this, is a monastery, of course that didn't do any good. <laughs> <laughs> And if you were actually starting to run out the doors and run away, and this guy was kind of doing his thing, I thought, oh dear. You know, so I, thought, I, went and I just came up to him and said, you know what, mate, you're really getting yourself upset. Let's go for a little walk. We walked around the sala. I ended up holding his hand, walking him round. And he's kind of railing around. He goes, oh, you getting yourself in a state, you know. And he just I put my arm around his shoulder, just told him to, it's all right. He sank onto the floor, curled up in a heap, and fell asleep. <laughs> it was just that sense that you've got to kind of meet people without trying to demean them, rather than trying to change them. The change will happen because the system, our system, seeks balance, and sometimes we just lose it. And getting pressure on that doesn't help it to return to balance. What helps it is just, you know, just some goodwill and spaciousness and sensitivity. Mm-hmm. This is what you learn. Well, you learn it often the hard way. Uh, you can't control things. You can't make everything go your way. You can't stop chaos coming into the door. It's just, you know, you've got to meet it. And really what makes a monastery and community uh, strong and vibrant, not just as an outward form, but in themselves, is our individual and collective ability to just to meet things and stay steady and spacious and recognize this is going to change. Me flapping my arms around and getting upset about it isn't going to do anybody any good. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the culture. Mm-hmm. That's the underlying strength of, the, of our culture and our willingness to, to meet suffering and not go into grasping, craving strategies to stop it happening. No. Mm. The sense of just the harmlessness and the respect. Mm, transformative. It's such a beautiful place because this place has said no killing. And, you know, when we, we had lots of rabbits here and uh, said, oh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to control your vermin. Of course, rabbits are vermin. Poor little rabbit. Didn't realize it was vermin, he just wanted something to eat. They got called vermin and shot. <laughs> and the farmer wants all his cabbages. They don't want, he's not going to share with some rabbits, so they're vermin. It's your duty to shoot them. And we're supposed to shoot these creatures. So he, no, so he said, What we do, we build a fence around our property to keep all our rabbits inside the property. So we don't have to shoot them. Okay, so we did that. Rabbits run around. First of all, there's thousands of rabbits. You could hardly see the grass for rabbits. <laughs> you go down, look at that south, and it's kind of carpet of grey gray fur. There's so many of them. Oh my goodness, it's really going to get out. And eventually nature came in, and I guess the foxes and the cats and the dogs and the rabbit population went up, 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 and gradually leveled. Now we just see a few hopping around. We don't know killing. Did not kill. They, they, they work. Nature works it out. Yeah, 
the wall out there when we were building this hall, this hall, we didn't, we didn't destroy anything, any life for this hall. We didn't, there was no trees here, we didn't cut any trees down for the hall. We had these, some of these oak beams had fallen over and people gave them to us. And these other ones, we coppiced the, the chestnut. Only thing that got harmed was a bat, a bat hiding up in the roof of the old building that used to live here. And this bat was, so the monks were tearing it down. They found this bat, got, uh, fell out of the roof and he'd broken his wings. All work stopped. Everybody stopped work. They phoned up the local bat officer, came running around his bat, got his cotton wool under it, got escorted out of the monastery and taken to a bat hospital <laughs> and fed moths. So I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> the monastery got that concerned for a whole building project, you stop everything for the sake of one bat. But yeah, that's what counts. That's what we're here for. We had bees, bees were nesting in the wall, and whether we had to take down the wall to build the cloister, just to dig, you know, move the stone around. They are, oh, we just knock the wall. No, you don't knock the wall down because it's got bees in it. Okay, so somebody volunteered, get the bee suit on, come out in the middle of the night when the bees were asleep, and gradually take all the bees out <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> and that's what they did. They moved all the bees in the night time so the bees wouldn't be disturbed. These are bees. They're precious. They, they give us... They, they pollinate things. You just can't kill bees. They, they pollinate the world, you know. So you could look after them. Inconvenient, uncomfortable, slow things down, but we're a monastery. That's what we do. We don't run those other programs. The most important is to not grasp, dominate, control, and push other creatures around just to fit our wishes. Live in harmony. Is cultivate that that perception, that sanya. You know, you do it to a bee, you do it to a bat, you do it to awkward, uncomfortable human beings, <laughs> and it becomes such a standard that you live in that domain and you feel glad. Mm. You feel glad. Mm. So the, this is all in the Buddhist understanding. This kind of this understanding of respect. That things are what they are because of the way we relate to them. If you relate to something as a pest, it becomes a pest. If you relate to it as another creature, it becomes an, it's another creature. As much right to be here as me. That transforms, right? So, you know, relationship, so crucial. And to liberate oneself from these fixed positions and strategies. This understanding in, in Buddhist culture, this precedes meditation. And whatever meditation is. Meditation is just a deepening into that domain. Called jhana, you absorb into that quality of deep impermanence and deep relationship to experience of being here. The energies, the sensations, the thoughts, the feelings, just respect, respect. Don't mess, don't tangle, don't grip. You deepen into that. So the realizations, the fruitions of those themes of virtue and goodwill and respect deepens into very tissues of your body and you feel very, very glad and free. And this is why we uh, present these teachings, uh, why they are to be, they are kind of simple and yet they're extremely pointed and you've got to take and look where the pointer is going to, just like Kundanyo did. He didn't just repeat what the Buddha said. He got the point and turned it. This is what he's pointing at. 
let's keep our eyes on that and great gladness will arise harmony will arise in the world around us offer this for your reflection <laughs>